This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Me Too movement has brought to light countless stories of alleged sexual abuse. Speaking up is one step toward healing, but then what? Well, one solution is for the victim to sit down with the perpetrator and actually talk it out. The approach is called restorative justice, and it's fraught with opportunity and risks. I wonder if you know what happened back then. That I dropped out of school, that I fled from everything I knew, that I had now come to distrust, and that finally I attempted suicide. But probably the worst part of all of it is that I wonder if you know that it's in your power to put a stop to this for me. It's always been in your power. You could still say you're sorry today. You could fix this at any moment. We could sit down and figure out how to heal together. I can never change what happened. But you can start to repair the damage any day you want. That is a young woman reading an email she wrote to the former friend she says raped her. Now, while restorative justice has been available in Colorado for years, it has rarely been used in cases of sexual assault here. So to understand the possibilities and the pitfalls, we're joined by Nancy Lewis, executive director of COVA. That's the Colorado Organization for Victim Assistance. Also, Lynn Lee, a restorative justice trainer and facilitator. Welcome to you both. Welcome. Thank Thank you. you. So the clip we just heard is from Vice News, and later we'll play some of the actual conversation that took place between that victim and the man she says raped her. Those discussions are known as VODs, Victim Offender Dialogues. And first, Lynn, give us an idea of the sorts of serious crimes you've helped bring restorative justice to. So some of the offenses that I've seen, um, I think one that really sticks out for me is a victim contacted me whose three-year-old was killed in a drive-by shooting, um, and that was the drive-by shooting was between rival gangs. So she wanted to meet with the two young men who killed her son. So she met with one of them in Lyman um, Prison, and then the other young man is incarcerated at Territorial. Both of those young men were 15 years old when they committed their crime and were given life without parole. And so restorative justice is used in the most serious cases. Absolutely. Um, Most of these kinds of cases that I've seen, people have lost one of their loved ones through violent crime. And they are eager to meet with the perpetrator for what reason? Well, they all have different reasons. So every victim has their own thoughts about what they want to be able to tell the person who um, committed the crime or information that they want to get from the person who committed the offense. Do you think that they're driven by the need to hear, I'm sorry? Not always. What I see being really common is they all want to know who that person was then and who that person is now. And if they've changed. Yes. And perhaps if they feel sorry in some respect. What has to be in place for restorative justice to work? So in these kinds of cases, the 
request for restorative justice has to come from the victim. Okay. And then the person who committed the offense has to be accountable for their offense. Um, we don't want to re-victimize anybody. So, so this is someone who has to say, yes, I did this. Yes. They not only have to say, yes, I did this, but they have to feel some remorse around the harm that they've caused, and they have to be willing to sit down with the victim and be able to listen to them and answer their questions. Nancy Lewis, in the context of the Me Too movement, I want to ask you why restorative justice has not, at least here, often been used in cases of sexual assault. Um, that's sort of a long story, but I I believe we are just embarking on victim-offender dialogue. We now have a, a study that's being done to find out, to evaluate um, it, the victim's healing in doing restorative justice this way. Um, that is to say, is it healing, and is there proof behind right, that? Right, and we're we're teamed up with DU to do that. Um, and I think the the process is to make sure that we have trained facilitators. The thing that Lynn didn't say is that we have very good trained facilitators, and it isn't like you make the decision that you're going to meet and you meet. There's a whole process that happens so that there's no harm caused to either the offender or the victim. That's right. So these dialogues are facilitated. And I think what I hear you saying is you can't just go into that willy-nilly. You need right. to have the proper training. Right. Well, you you have to have the proper, proper training, and the victim and the offender have to go through proper preparation before that happens. And that can be a short time or that can be a long time. So there's a lot of homework to do. What are the possibilities here, do you think, when it comes to sexual assault? And what are the biggest biggest risks? Well, I'm, I'm first going to tell you a story about how I got involved in this. And I went sure. to Texas and I thought, oh, yeah, restorative justice is real good for these young kids and, you know, petty theft and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I went to see a sexual assault victim who had been raped and left for dead, and he came back and raped her again and left her for dead the second time. Oh, my goodness. And she met with the offender after a lot of preparation. And what she said at the end of the presentation that she was giving was, it was the only thing that gave her peace in the justice system. I came back to Colorado and said, we need it here. And so it's it's just the process of, of us being able to do that. This is a woman, as you say, who was left for dead after being raped, then raped again. And she found healing through restorative justice. Yes. And obviously with the, the right preparation beforehand. I want to go back to the HBO news program Vice. Uh, in the previous segment, we heard from Alexis, who had drunken sex with one of her friends, James. And she said the incident occurred without her consent. About a year after the email that we heard earlier, uh, the two met. And I want to note some parts of this discussion aren't appropriate for young listeners. Uh, I told myself it was a dream and, and that the things I thought I had seen and imagined just couldn't be real. Like, really not not wanting to face the next level of this line of questioning. There's a lot that I don't remember how I got into your room, why I came into your room, uh, when it happened, any of those details. The first memories I have um, are of me being on top of you in your bed. Um, and that experience, I was able to normalize it because... I 
um, I just want to be careful with the words I use, but it, you were active in the process in the sense that you weren't um, unconscious. And so for um, that image and that memory of that portion of it was what allowed me to call it sex for nine years. Um, when it had been established kind of through our friends that you felt this was rape and that I had felt this was uh, a drunken sexual experience. And I wasn't ready to have that conversation with myself. I was a good person. I, I, how could I possibly do that to you, to one of my best friends? Again, that's audio from the HBO news program Vice. Alexis and one of her former friends, James, trying to reconcile uh, in what's called restorative justice. Lynn Lee, you're a restorative justice trainer and facilitator. Is it possible for this to be somehow manipulated so that someone is re-victimized? And do you have to look out for that? Oh, I think it's absolutely positive possible that that can happen. And it is something that we need to be really conscious of as facilitators. We always facilitate these conferences with another facilitator. So there's two of us. Um, That's really helpful, keeping us on track and keeping us um, really conscious about what's happening. I think that aspect that you bring up and the aspect of safety for people people who have been victims of violent crime is our primary responsibility to make sure that them coming together is going to be safe. What do you think is the potential of using restorative justice in cases of sexual assault? I think it could be really healing um, for a victim. I think in restorative justice as facilitators and training, we really need to engage the community that has knowledge about manipulation um, and the possibilities that could be there for, that might be brought by somebody who's committed a sexual related offense. I think what I hear you saying is you have to get into their minds. You have to know what their understanding is to be able to proceed with this. I think that's partly true, but what is feels really true for me is I would want to co-facilitate with somebody that had that expertise. Huh. I, I wonder about the, the kind of legal framework here. So uh, I understand that restorative justice in Colorado is sometimes offered after a conviction, but would it be possible for someone to be charged with a crime if law enforcement heard part of that victim-offender dialogue, Nancy? I'm not sure I can answer that question. I am actually seeing a case right now that is um, pre-plea. So pre-plea? The, yes. I'm not sure. Every um, one of these conferences brings its own issues, and there's always something to work out. So... There are certainly some pieces that we have been working on for a while in the context of this case, and I can't tell you whether the conference will happen or not. Um, Would would the idea be that there's some level of immunity if the person were willing to engage in this? Yes. In this case, actually, the person who is the victim in this case um, committed the same offense previously and was incarcerated for it. So he did not want to see this 
offender incarcerated for the offense. So he has asked for the restorative justice conference. Is that often the case? No. <laughs> that's, um, I don't know if that's happened before in Colorado. Uh, that's pretty rare. I've never seen a case like this before. So I would like to just um, go back to what you said. In the case with James and Alexis, um, he sounded like somebody who made a very bad mistake. With sexual perpetrators, oftentimes there is a part of grooming, there's a part of secrecy, there's a part of manipulation. That's different than James and Alexis. Mm. And so there becomes the divide of making sure that you have facilitators who understand that process. And then not all offenders are created equal. Not all offenders are created equal. And not all, this is not for every crime victim. Crime victims have to choose this and, and want to participate in this. And it isn't like they come to an understanding as much as it is that both sides get some answers that they haven't had before. Lynn Lee, uh, you're a restorative justice trainer and facilitator. You mentioned earlier a meeting that you facilitated between Charletta Evans, whose three-year-old son, Quezon, was killed in a drive-by shooting in 1995, and the killer, Raymond Johnson. Uh, We spoke with Charletta Evans in 2011 and again the following year after she became the first person in Colorado to use the state law for a victim-offender dialogue. I gave him the opportunity to speak first, and he began to disclose his whole life, what led him up to the actual crime that he committed in taking my son's life. And when he began to speak, the first thing that came out of his mouth was, thank you for being here. Thank you for this opportunity. And I messed up. And he began to weep. And he was very remorseful about the whole thing to where he was pretty much out of control as far as his remorse. So later in September of 2016, Charletta Evans spoke with another man convicted in the crime, Paul Littlejohn. I just want to note there were many years between uh, the murder of her son and the restorative justice process. Is is that important that there be time between the crime and the dialogue? Um, it, yeah, that was really interesting. Four years later when she met with Paul, that was a totally different conference. She was looking for something totally different the second time. I think when I get cases referred to me that are 12, 13, 17 years old, I feel a little bit better about those than the ones that are like the pre-plea case that I just talked about. The victims in when somebody has lost a loved one, if they are still in the court process and they are still hit with um, bills, insurance daily, It just brings a different piece than somebody who's had some time to work through some of what's happened. And so you think that the process works better if some time has passed and some of the, gosh, it's really the the paperwork of death or the paperwork of being a victim has settled to some extent. 
I everybody's different, so I don't want to say that I think it works better, but there are probably fewer things or different things to work through if a period of time has passed. What does it take to get uh, an, an offender and a victim on the same page and even prepared for that dialogue? So I'm not sure if we ever get them on the same page. Um, we are all human beings, so we sort of all have a different um, take on the things that have happened to us in our lives. But to bring them together takes anywhere, I would say, from four months to a year of working back and forth with each of them to figure out exactly what a victim of a serious crime is looking for and to determine whether or not the person who can, who committed the offense can give them that. Nancy Lewis from the Colorado Organization for Victim Assistance. What would it take to bring this process, restorative justice, to Colorado when it comes to sexual assault? What do you think is the promise here? Well, I think we're moving towards that. I mean, with the study, we have probably 40, 40 trained facilitators. It will be taking a look at um, once, you know, once we get sort of through this study and taking a look at it. This is, is at the University of Denver. At the University of Denver is taking a look at what is it going to take to have facilitators who understand the manipulation that can happen with a sexual assault perpetrator. And how do you study for that? It sounds very difficult. You, well, you you have people who have worked with uh, offenders and understand what that manipulation looks like. What, what do you think about the timeline uh, of when you engage in restorative justice? I mean, is it something that you think can come fresh off a crime, or do you, do you agree that it ought to be something that follows perhaps years later? I think every single person who is a crime victim is different, and I don't think there's any way you can put a time limit on it. The victim has to come to the space that they that's what they request and that's what they want. Uh, what you have to realize is with a very serious crime like sexual assault or losing a loved one, there's so much trauma involved right away. And until you get through that trauma, until you've passed a little bit beyond it, can you make those decisions? Well, thanks to both of you for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. Thank Nan you. Nancy Lewis, Executive Director of COVA, the Colorado Organization for Victim Assistance. Lynn Lee is a restorative justice facilitator and trainer. On the Western Slope, there is a conservation project that boils down to this. Drink beer, help rivers. Many Rivers Brewing makes and sells beer to raise money for river improvement projects. A hundred percent of profits go to that cause. Tim Carlson, beer brewer and retired environmental engineer, is in our Grand Junction studio. Hi, Tim. Good morning. I understand that your interest in rivers started early uh, when one that you swam in as a kid caught on fire. Tell me about that. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's an interesting story. Well, uh, I grew up in northeast Ohio, and my grandparents had a farm, and I used to swim through a little stream and play in it, um, you know, it seemed like days on end. And in June of 69, that river caught fire. It's the Cuyahoga River, caught fire in Cleveland from... A lot of uh, oil being dumped directly from refineries and 
also from steel mills and other sources. And I was in my second year of college at that time in engineering and said, you know, maybe this is a good area I ought to get involved in. I mean, it's, you know, in my backyard. So that's what I did. Strange thing to think of a river catching on fire, but it's because so much of what was in the river was not water. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Since then, you've spent decades working on waterway improvement projects. But why continue that work now through beer? I mean, why not cupcakes or (laughs) (laughs) T-shirts? That's a good question. So part of it is I have been working about 45 years on river systems in one form or another, trying to keep them clean. And one of the things working with nonprofits is, you know, we we discovered that the biggest problem we have in working on rivers is finding the money. And so a bunch of us, basically four of us, were sitting around a table eating pizza, drinking beer, (laughs) saying, what could we do that could improve nonprofits' ability to access funding? And we said, why don't we do what Paul Newman does? Create a company that makes a good product and then give all the profits away. Paul Newman, like he has the salad dressings. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, spaghetti sauce and so on. And we did look at a number of projects. But, you know, when you got a beer in your hand, it kind of goes, why don't we just do beer? And, of course, a key key ingredient of beer is water. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Previously, you'd done everything from working to eradicate tamarisk on riverbanks to keeping pollutants out of water. What are some of the problems you're addressing now? Well, we're working with different organizations and communities. Our goal is to connect people to the river. So, for instance, the Colorado Riverfront Foundation here in the Grand Junction area has a 30-mile trail system along the river that allows people to understand and gain further respect for the value that rivers bring to a community. They tend to be the lifeblood of the area. And so, I mean, that's, you know, an organization we support. We support other uh, groups in fundraising by providing beer to them. And beer brings people together and tends to open up their wallets. You've set up a foundation called Forever Our Rivers to distribute money and uh, so far have donated, I think, about $20,000. You're also doing a partnership on a river in Arizona. Yes, we are. Two of our partners live down in the Verde Valley, which is in central Arizona, and they are working with the Nature Conservancy with a farmer to convert alfalfa to barley, which is used for making beer, and they're able to save about half the amount of water uh, being used for irrigating that crop. And also during the hot summer months uh, where uh, barley doesn't need uh, water during that time period. Ah, interesting. A lot of alfalfa grown in that area. Is the idea that that barley would eventually make it into your beer? Uh, Probably not because... There's a big demand down in Arizona for malted barley, but for the farmer, he had to have a market. So our two partners down in Arizona have built a malting facility. So it's called Sanagua Malt. And so we're connecting farmer to a a market, and then that market is the craft brewers in Arizona. And it's an interesting model that could actually be replicated in Colorado. You know, we're trying to save water. It's a big part of the uh, state water plan. Now, is it 
overstating this to say that, you know, maybe compared to alfalfa, barley is better to grow. But isn't isn't beer making a water-intensive process? It is a water-intensive process. You typically need three to seven gallons of water to produce a gallon of beer. Um, most, well, besides the water that goes into the beer, the other water is mostly cleaning water. The brewing operation needs a lot of water just to clean things. Huh. And that gets back in the river after it's treated, so it's not a consumptive use. That is to say the water can be reused. That's correct. Uh-huh. I wonder, the Cuyahoga is a kind of famous story of environmental cleanup, right? I mean, now it's it's in much better shape. Under a few, yeah, in it, it. it's a <laughs> it's an interesting river because the fire was what brought a lot of the environmental laws to fruition, like the Clean Water Act, for instance. But nowadays, that area is considered a playground. Uh, that's where the upper end, you know, apartments and entertainment is all happening is on the riverfront. It's a big draw and it's clean. You know, it's now very clean and, you know, people flock down there. So it's been a, you know, it's taken 50 years to get to this point, but that's where the action is in Cleveland. Yeah. And we're seeing that in so many communities really across the country that, River fronts, which were once industrial and blighted and polluted, are now uh, returning to the lifeblood of these communities. Tim, thanks for being with us. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Tim Carlson is the founder of Many Rivers Brewing in Grand Junction. And since our interview with him in August, Many Rivers has expanded its distribution in Colorado to include the Front Range. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, I'm Jesse Witten from Colorado Public Radio's Open Air and one of the hosts of our brand new podcast, The Playlist League. What I love about this is it takes something as beautifully subjective and personal as music and makes it into a battle royale. It's a music conversation, but done competitively as we draft playlists song by song according to a theme each month. So if you like music discovery, bloodthirsty competition, or even just a fun, casual hang session with some fellow music lovers, check out The Playlist League from CPR's Open Air. And that's our show for today. Just to note that the deadline is approaching for Colorado musicians to enter our contest. It's the chance to appear in the Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza. We tape it on a stage in Denver in front of about a thousand people, then air the program statewide. You have to enter by October 29th. Find all the details at CPR.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.